Are any of you in here <clears throat> familiar with the name Dar Robinson? Anybody ever heard that name, Dar Robinson? Okay, got one up there. <laughs> well, even though you may not be familiar with the name, I'm sure many of you have seen his work. At one time, Robinson was thought by many to be one of modern cinema's greatest stuntmen and stunt innovators. Though he only appeared in a relatively small number of films compared to other stuntmen, he set new benchmarks in his profession. In Robinson's first appearance on screen, he doubled for Steve McQueen in the movie Papillon. In this movie, he performed a jaw-dropping stunt when he jumped into the sea off an enormously high cliff. In 1981, Robinson in the movie Sharky's Machine, starring Burt Reynolds, took a dive out of a, of a window of a skyscraper and landed on a large airbag many floors below. Dar was also the high fall specialist in the, in the movie High Point doubling for actor, actor Christopher Plummer. And in this movie, toward the end of the movie, Robinson pulled off one of his most thrilling stunts to date when he fell from an 1170-foot tower in Toronto, Canada. And though he took the plunge with a concealed airbag, he waited until the last few seconds to open the chute. In the early 80s, Robinson made history when he was featured in a special called The World's Most Spectacular Stuntman. In this special, he repeated the jump he made from the 1170-foot tower, but this time there was no parachute. All that was attached to him was a small steel cable that was set to stop him only a, a short distance above the ground. Here he is, getting ready to take this plunge right here. Well, check out this stunt. I've got a clip of this stunt here, and though it should be obvious to you, kids don't try this at home, all right? All right. Check out this clip. In 1979 film, High Point, Christopher Plummer loses his grip and plunges to the ground from the tallest building in the world. Of course, it's Dar Robinson, once again doing the impossible. A parachute hidden under his jacket, released three seconds from the concrete street. What were you thinking of when you pushed off? I was hoping it was going to work. <laughs> what else? Any doubts? Yeah, I always have doubts. I did. The 120-story building in Toronto, Canada intrigued Dar and it inspired an idea for a spectacular stunt that would bring him back a year later. That is the world's tallest freestanding structure, the CN Tower in Toronto, Canada. With Kathy Lee Crosby as host reporter of a one-hour special featuring Dar performing new stunts, he planned to leap off the tower again, this time without a parachute. What we're going to do this time is without a parachute, without an airbag, when it's up from CN Tower with nothing but a small wire hooked to me. Only a small wire to break his fall a second before he would hit the ground. Maybe I'll just do a ready, take, go, all right, Kai? Hi, Kai. Hey, man, I love you guys. I love you, Dar. All right. 
Ready, Pickle? Ready. You ready? Ready? Set! But you can't tell that was made in the 80s, right? Yeah, music. And, and I have to make this comment. Don't you love that Chuck Norris is the commentator? I mean, I know that a lot of jokes are already coming to your minds right now. And, uh, but let's be honest, from the perspective of us common folks, maybe not from Chuck Norris's perspective, that's a pretty incredible stunt, isn't it? Well, with this stunt, Robinson broke a world record. He was paid such an enormous amount of money for the jump that he became the highest paid stuntman for a single stunt to date, which landed him in the 1988 Guinness Book of World Records. Well, on November 21st, 1986, tragedy struck for Dar. Shortly after performing stunts in the blockbuster hit Lethal Weapon, while on the set of another film, Robinson's life came to an abrupt end. While filming a routine high-speed chase, Robinson rode his stunt motorcycle past the breaking point of a turn and went straight off the side of a cliff to his death. Up to this point in Robinson's 19-year Hollywood career, he had never even broken a bone. But during this routine stunt, he lost his life. Robinson's story reminds us of a very simple but key truth, and it's this. If you live life on the edge, a fall is likely. If you live life on the edge, a fall is likely. Now, we, we know this to be true in a physical sense, right? But also as believers, we should know this to be true in a spiritual sense as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to be looking at verses 14 through 22 this morning. Remember when I was young, the question me and my friends would, would often ask in church when it came to certain morally gray issues was this, how far is too far? Anybody ever ask that question? How far is too far? Where are our boundaries? And the reason we wanted to know is because we wanted to go as close to the edge as possible without falling over. And this seems to be what the Corinthians were after as well. You remember a few weeks ago when I introduced this section to you in the book of 1 Corinthians, I explained to you that the Corinthians had sent Paul a, a series of questions. And one of those questions was concerning their Christian liberties. They were asking Paul, about what they could do and what they couldn't do and what was lawful and what was unlawful. And the reason why is because they too wanted to push the bounds and go right out there on the edge. 
morally. Well, how does Paul respond? Does he say, as far as you think you need to go? Is that what he says? Does he say, get out there as close to the edge as possible without going over? Does he say, I encourage you, push your liberty to the limits? No. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, move away from the edge altogether. Run away from potential danger. Go in the opposite direction. Look at the key verse from this passage, verse 14. Look at what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says, flee. There's that word again. Remember, he used that word earlier on in this book when he's talking about sexual immorality. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And here he says, flee from idolatry. And again, that word flee means flee. There's easy application to be made here. Paul is saying, run away. Now in this verse, you have a specific danger that is mentioned that is threatening the health of the Corinthian congregation. And it's the, the threat of idolatry. Now why does Paul mention idolatry specifically here? Well, let me briefly explain this again to you for those of you who've kind of been in and out or for those of you who are here for the first time. I, I mentioned this several weeks ago when introducing this section, but I'm going to give a little background again just to kind of, as a, as a reminder to some of you. In that day, the pagans in Corinth believed that evil spirits wanted to enter into people's bodies. And the way that they did this was by attaching themselves to the food that people would eat. And so people, out of fear of that, they would, they would take their meat and they would take it to the pagan priests. And that pagan priest would offer this meat up to the idols. And they would offer it up, they would burn some on the altar, they would keep some back for themselves to eat, and they would donate the rest to the marketplace, where it would be sold at a discounted rate. And most people would buy this kind of meat in the marketplace. And one of the reasons why is because they knew it was safe to consume, because it had been handled by the priest. But another reason why is because it was cheap. So in those days, when you would go and eat at someone's house, or you would go to a community festival, chances were good that you were eating food that had been handled by the priests and had been offered to idols. Now the question that the Corinthians had for Paul is this, is it okay to eat? The more mature Corinthians believed that it was, because an idol isn't anything anyways, so it's just another hamburger or steak and nothing more. And though Paul agrees, he knew that there were some in their midst who had just been called out by God from this pagan situation and this pagan lifestyle who still had a lot of hang-ups. They had not matured enough spiritually. And to them, eating meat that had been handled by the pagan priest, it was a big deal to them. So Paul calls for the more mature believers to waive the rights they have. He calls for them to allow their love for their Christian brother or sister to limit their liberty. But along with this message, Paul knew something else as well. He also knew 
that the weaker Christians were not the only ones who were in danger. He knew that there were some of the more mature who were pushing their liberties way out to potentially unhealthy and dangerous extremes. There were some who were saying, because an idol isn't anything, not only can we eat the meat, but we can also take part to an extent in the pagan celebrations. They were saying, because idols don't really exist, we can go to the temples and and go to the festivals and take part at a certain level to a certain extent because we don't believe in idols. They were pushing their liberty right out to the edge. For those folks in chapter 10, Paul says, you're getting dangerously close to full-fledged idol worship. So what you need to do is you need to turn in the opposite direction and move away from the edge of it. He says, I don't care how in control you think you are. If you think you stand, you better pay attention or you're going to fall. In our text this morning, Paul is going to explain why living on the edge is so dangerous and why it should be avoided at all costs. Look at verse 15. Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Here Paul is is setting up the argument for why they need to avoid pushing their liberty to its limits. He tells them here, you guys are sensible people. Hear me out, and you be the judge. Then he gives them three reasons why they need to avoid living their lives spiritually on the edge. First reason why. Because it is inconsistent with the Christian faith. In verses 16 through 18, Paul makes this point to the Corinthians by using the Lord's Supper and the Old Testament sacrificial practices as illustrations. Now, I know at first glance, you're like, what, what, where, what? Just hang with me, okay? Hopefully, you will get this after I do a little bit of explaining here. You will understand Paul's point clearly. First, look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions about the Lord's Supper. In that day, this practice took place on a regular basis, much more frequently than it does today. They took it at least on a weekly basis, if not every time they gathered together. So because... The Corinthians took this on a regular basis. They had a clear understanding of the practice. And they have a clear understanding of the points that Paul is making about the Lord's Supper. Paul says this. When you come together for the Lord's Supper, are you not identifying with the person and work of Christ? Are you not, when you take the bread, acknowledging the fact that Jesus took on flesh and that he dwelt among us? He says, are you not, when you take the cup, 
saying that Christ shed his blood for you so that you might be forgiven of sin and made right with God. Paul is asking them rhetorically, are you not, when you eat the bread and when you drink the wine, associating yourself with Christ and acknowledging the fact that you have been crucified with him and that the life you now live is his? And my guess is, when this was read in the Corinthian assembly, that the Christians at Corinth responded like many of you would today if I asked that question to you, with the resounding, yes. That's what we're saying. Look at verse 17. Paul continues by saying, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Paul simply makes a point here that not only does the Lord's Supper bring a believer together with the Lord, not only is, is it a union of a believer with, with the Lord, but it's also the union of a believer with other believers. That's why it's called a communion, because it involves a community of believers. The Lord's Supper shows that believers, though from different households, from different backgrounds, from different person, with different personalities, from different walks of life, have this common unity that they all belong to Christ and are all trusting in Him for their salvation and are following Him as Lord. In verse 18, Paul makes a similar point. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Paul is asking a similar rhetorical question here. But here he asks it about the Jews in the Old Testament. He basically says here, is the same not true for the Jews? When they bring their sacrifices to, to offer to God, are they not identifying themselves with the Lord of the sacrifice and with their Jewish brothers and sisters? And of course the answer again is yes. Now, what point is Paul trying to make with these illustrations? Well, context tells us here. By Paul giving these illustrations, he is saying, for the same reasons you gather together for communion, and for the same reason the Jewish people gathered back in the day to offer sacrifices to the one true God is the exact same reason why you're not to be hanging out in pagan temples and taking part in pagan ceremonies. That's Paul's point. He's making the point that by doing both, you're being inconsistent in your Christian life and you are sending mixed signals to the unbelieving world. It says you can't line with believers and be associated with them and take from the Lord's table and then go hang out with the pagans in the pagan temple taking part in pagan worship. says you're sending out mixed signals here. That's why Paul says, flee. Flee from those practices. The reason why is because they can destroy your Christian witness. Now I know some of you are thinking, okay Graham, I get that. But how in the world does this apply to me today? What in the world does this have to do with me? I don't hang out in pagan temples, eating demon meat, hanging out with false worshipers. It's not a part of my life. It may be true, but let me ask you this. 
How would people identify you if they were asked? If they asked. How do people perceive you? If someone asked one of your coworkers or friends about you and about what you're passionate about and about what you love, how would they respond? Would your relationship with the Lord and your association with God's people even be mentioned? Listen, the people you run around with, and the places you spend the most of your time, and, and the activities you spend your money on, and where you spend the majority of your energy is how you're going to be perceived. It's how you're going to be identified. If those closest to you, when asked, cannot identify you with God and with the godly, that's a problem. It is. I urge you to examine your life this morning. See whether or not you are living on the edge by living an inconsistent spiritual life. And there's a simple way to test this. Ask yourself this. What am I most passionate about? How and where and with whom do I spend the majority of my time? What do I spend most of my time thinking about? And where do I spend the majority of my money and my energy? I guarantee you, if you are honest about the way you answer those things, your answers will be telling. They will. I pray that if you are living a life that is inconsistent with the life that God has called you to live, that you would make the decision today to get back on track, to repent of those things and get back on track spiritually and that you would make your relationship with God and with His people a top priority. Second reason why it's important that we avoid living on the edge and avoid pushing our liberty to its limits is because, number two, can lead to demonic activity. Now, I know that sounds strange to some of you, but bear with me, all right? Look at verse 19. Paul says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Let's stop here for a minute. Notice Paul begins by siding with the Corinthians to an extent. Okay, he's done this throughout when talking about Christian liberty. Paul is saying here, am I saying that an idol is a true God? Am I saying that there is really a God who exists that these people are worshiping and offering sacrifices to? And the answer, of course, is no. Paul says, of course I'm not saying that. You know as well as I do that an idol isn't anything anyways. Paul's already made that point, right? He says, I know there's nothing inherently evil about a rock or a statue or an image. So Paul sides to them to an extent in that he realizes an idol is, isn't a real God. It isn't anything. But look at verse 20. He says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul says here that even though the false gods of the pagans are not really gods at all, 
He goes on to say, though that's the case, there is still real, dark, godless, demonic, spiritual forces at work behind them. That's what Paul's saying. Now, when people hear this verse, and others like it, they immediately want to move to the obvious of dabbling in the occult and messing around with Ouija boards and psychics. And there is real application to be made here. Hear me when I say that there are real dangers to dabbling in these practices. Scripture is clear that Satan and his demons are real and that we are not to involve ourselves in those kind of practices because when we do involve ourselves in those things like the Christians in Corinth were involving themselves with, that, that Satan and his demons are all over that. And to do so is to commune with demons. Talk about living your spiritual life on the edge, I'd say that's it, right? Yeah. Those activities are not to be messed with, and if you ever come in contact with those things, you're to follow Paul's advice and flee. Get out of there. But to those of you in here saying, ah, it's not an issue for me, know this. All idolatry, whether it's the worship of an image, or covetousness, or lust, or idols in your heart, all of it's demonic. It is. And to be mastered by those things is to live on the edge. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. He says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Again, Paul returns to the illustration of the Lord's Supper because they were taking this at least on a, on a weekly basis. So what they were doing was they were going to the pagan temples and they were hanging out, taking part in that on a regular basis. Then they were going to the Lord's table with other believers and they were being seen with believers as well as pagans. Paul says, you can't do that. You cannot do that. To do so is, is to to live an inconsistent spiritual life. He says, you cannot be identified with God and with demons. You cannot partake in the Lord's Supper and in Satan's Supper. This is similar to what Paul, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6. Now, he's talking about God and mammon, comparing God and our stuff, and which one takes precedent in your life, but it applies here. He says, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot have two masters. Believers, at times we try, don't we? But you cannot do it. You know why? Because God will not share his loyalties. And by trying to do so, you are living on the edge and in danger of a great fall. So I urge you today, if you're being mastered by the things of this world, repent. Turn back to God. Step back from the edge and seek to love and to serve the Lord. This leads us right into our third and, and final point. Third reason why it's important that we avoid living on the edge and avoid pushing our liberty to its limits is this. Number three. Because it is offensive to the Lord. 
Now this last point may sound obvious to you, but it is the most important. Living on the edge, living an inconsistent Christian life and communing with demons is an offense to the Lord. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. He says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Here Paul reminds us of a key truth about our God that is repeated many times throughout the Scriptures, and it's this. It's that our God, He is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Like we said in the previous point, He does not share loyalties. He doesn't. He wants all of us, or He wants nothing at all. He is jealous for me. And he is jealous for you. And this is not a petty jealousy, okay? God is all about that which is most holy, that which is most upright, about that which is most worthy to be esteemed in worship, namely himself. And you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds sort of self-centered. You're right. God is. He is a self-centered God. You know why? Because there is no other being in all of creation that compares to Him. Therefore, to be centered upon anyone else or anything else is to fall infinitely short. And God doesn't fall infinitely short. There's no other being in all of existence that is worthy of worship other than Him. Therefore, God refuses to allow any of us to settle for anything less. Listen, when we move away from God, push our liberty to its limits and refuse to waive any rights that we have, what we are showing by our actions is that we love and cherish those things more than God himself. Paul also gives us a word of warning here in warning the Corinthians He makes the point that they need to be careful not to provoke God to jealousy because He is much bigger than we are. And at times He carries out punishment on those who test Him in this way. All of us are familiar with the phrase, pick on somebody your own size, right? Y'all know that phrase? Yeah. And it basically means if you're going to mess with somebody, you better be able to back it up. That's what Paul is getting at here when he asks a rhetorical question, are we stronger than he? Are we stronger than the one true God? And the answer is, of course not. Paul says that to make the point that God is not a God to be messed with. He's not. He's basically saying you may be able to bully a lesser God, but don't try with the God of the Bible because he might push back. The Corinthians learned this the hard way. The next chapter we learn that some of the Corinthians who tried to push God, they paid the price for it. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul tells them that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul says all that to stress once again the dangers of pushing your liberty to its limits right out there to the edge. Because like we said earlier, if you live on the edge, a fall is likely. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a morally daring person. You may think to yourself, you're the most careful and conservative 
person you know. You may have always been considered by others and considered yourself to be a man or woman of, of principle, of integrity, and, and have a high view of mor- morality, and would not classify yourself as one who lives on the edge morally. Let me ask you a simple question. Who is the master of your life? Are you the master? Or is God? Listen carefully when I say this. There are many in our world today, just like you, who are going at life on their own, without Him, attempting to carve out meaning and significance in this life apart from Him, and that is the quintessential definition of living on the edge spiritually. Never forget a book I was given in college. I received it while I was at an FCA camp, Fellowship Christian Athletes, and the title of the book was Playing with Fire. Collected dust on my bookshelf for two or three years. And I don't remember who wrote it. I remember it was a yellow book. I remember the title. And I even tried to Google it and couldn't find it. Other books came up with that name. But I remember the title of it. And I remember one night I decided I was going to read that book. It was a prompting of the Spirit of God. And I remember God used that message in that book to show me that I was playing with fire by going at life on my own without Him. I was living on the edge because I was living without God in my life. And I decided right then and there in my bedroom in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that I was going to step back from the edge and step into the arms of Christ. And I turned from my sin and I gave my life to the Lord. You know what I discovered shortly after that? That up to that point in my life, though I thought I was safe and secure, I was really like this guy here. Blindfolded, near the edge, on the brink of a big fall. Maybe this was you coming into service this morning. But God, over the course of this sermon, has removed the blindfold from your eyes and has made it known to you that you are living on the edge and and you need to turn to Him. If this is you this morning, I urge you, while there is still time, to step away from the edge and place your faith in your trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Would you pray with me?